0: We will hear argument first this morning in case 21-454, Sackett versus EPA. Mr. Schiff, you're up first this year.
1: Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. The Supreme Court opened its doors to a new term on Monday. Literally, the public was allowed into the
0: court for the first time since closing for the pandemic in March of 2020. This week felt a little more normal with members of the public in the seats to watch the arguments. But, you know, it's still a weird thing. I mean, I covered two terms of the court basically from my basement. The court didn't take the bench to talk about the big decisions it made. They simply popped up on the court's website.
1: That's Supreme Court reporter Robert Barnes. He's been covering the court since 2006. And he says last year was a term like no other, with precedent-shattering decisions on guns, the environment, and of course, abortion. So while things might be getting back to normal in some ways, there's still tension.
0: You know, I think that the court uh, is sort of scared of uh, what might happen, outbursts in the courtroom, demonstrations. From the newsroom
1: of the Washington Post, This is Post Reports. I'm Arjun Singh. It's Friday, October 7th. Today, we talk about the new Supreme Court term that's just begun this week, and why the court and the country still aren't over the last one. So, We're getting ready for a new Supreme Court term, but I think for a lot of Americans, they are still very much thinking about some of the things that happened in the last one, particularly that decision about Roe versus Wade. Before we get into some of the uh, cases that they're going to be hearing, what is the general sentiment towards the Supreme Court since that Dobbs decision in their last term?
0: All right. Well, I I think it's not just Americans that haven't given up on the last term yet. I think it's the justices as well. Um, They, in their speeches over the summer, uh, have not talked specifically, but they have sort of raised this question of what has such a big decision done to the court's reputation. I'm
2: not talking about any particular decision or even any particular series of decisions. But if, over time, the court loses all connection with the public and with public sentiment, uh,
3: that's a dangerous thing for a democracy.
0: You know, it was a huge decision that has really changed the way a lot of people look at the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court in the past has sort of been the institution in Washington that had the highest approval rating because, you know, sometimes conservatives won at the court, A few times liberals won at the court, and so the public opinion was kind of split on how it was doing. The Dobbs decision, which upheld a restrictive Mississippi abortion law and overturned Roe v. Wade, that was one that really captured the public's attention. And the Supreme Court's popularity, its approval rating, has plummeted. And, you know, it's important to say that The court is not supposed to rule because of the popularity of an issue, but it certainly shows the difference in the way the public is thinking about the Supreme Court these days.
1: But for legal observers, how did they feel about that Dobbs decision, the reversal of this longtime precedent? Was that shocking or as landmark within the legal community as it was with the public?
0: You know, this was a decades-long effort by the conservative legal establishment to overturn Roe, a decision that they thought was wrong at the time and went too far for what the court is supposed to do. You know, it dominated every confirmation hearing, right?
1: Do I have this day an opinion, a personal opinion, on the outcome in Roe versus Wade? And my answer to you is that I do not. But do you think there is as fundamental a concern uh, as legitimacy of the court uh, would be involved if Roe were to be overturned? Mr. Chairman, I think that the legitimacy of the court would be undermined in any case if the court made a decision based on its perception of public opinion
0: whether or not that justice was going to overturn Roe or uphold Roe.
3: As Richard Fallon from Harvard said, Roe is not a super precedent because calls for its overruling have never ceased, but that doesn't mean that Roe should be overruled.
0: It is shocking and surprising after all of that to see the court take that step, a very big step, overturning something that's been around for 50 years, taking away a constitutional right to abortion that. Uh, the court had once granted That's something that doesn't happen, that taking back a right and returning the issue to the states. So I think it was a shock for everyone, even though it was sort of foretold uh, by the changing Supreme Court and certainly after the oral arguments in the case last year when it seemed pretty clear that this court was ready to take such a big step.
1: One thing that I thought was very interesting was the leak that came out prior to the Dobbs decision, and a lot of things that I had been reading were about how unprecedented it was for a leak to come out of the Supreme Court. How did that leak change the dynamic uh, on the court?
0: The court, as you say, is a place where things just don't leak. You know, We've added up from time to time how many people in the court probably know about a decision before it's announced, and it's probably – 60, 70 people that knows what the court is going to do, and it never leaks before the decision is officially announced. So this was a real change, and it I think it has affected dramatically the way the justices relate to their clerks, the way they relate to other members of the staff, the way they relate to each other. Now, uh, we don't know where the leak came from yet. The chief justice announced the day after it became public, that uh, the marshal of the court was going to be doing an investigation. And that's the last thing he has said about it.
1: And so as we're moving into this new term, I'm curious, Bob, what are you looking at in this term? Do you think that we'll be hearing some decisions that could have as much of an impact as what we heard in the last term?
0: I don't know that anything is gonna to top row. But you know, there are a couple of things we're gonna be looking at. One, we have a new justice, Justice Katanji Brown Jackson, replacing one of the liberals, Stephen Breyer. She was a clerk for him. In this case we have a liberal justice, uh, replacing a liberal justice. So it doesn't change this six to three uh, supermajority that conservatives have on the court. You know, last year, what we were wondering was we knew that the court was going to be so conservative and we were wondering, you know, how quickly was it going to move? Uh, The answer was very quickly. Uh, You know, to overturn Roe and to do the other things that it did last term. I think we'll be looking to see, is that pace going to continue? This is a court that doesn't seem to be shying away from controversial issues. Were they sort of taken aback by the reaction to the Roe uh, decision? And will they look for more narrow ways to decide issues or... Is this a conservative majority that feels like it's doing the right thing and is just going to plow ahead? I think that's uh, one thing that we're going to be very interested in finding out by this term.
1: After the break, we'll talk about some of the most important cases the court is hearing this term and how they could impact voting, affirmative action and even same-sex marriage. We'll be right back.
2: I'm Hannah Rosen, host of Radio Atlantic. Wait, really? Every week, we talk to Atlantic writers or other creative thinkers, and we take one idea and we road test it. Maybe what I'm asking is, is the problem them or us? Sometimes I change my mind about things. That's such a good point. I never thought of that. Maybe you will, too. Or at least you might see something differently. Ooh, that's fabulous. Radio Atlantic. New episodes every Thursday.
1: Two cases that really stand out to me that I'm very interested in both regard voting rights and the Voting Rights Act. Can you explain what these cases the court is hearing and what exactly is the court ruling on?
0: Hmm. Well, there are two. One is from Alabama, and that involves the creation of so-called majority-minority districts. The Voting Rights Act says that when there are certain conditions met, the legislature should create districts in which minority communities are able to elect a candidate of their choice.
2: It became clear to me that the framers themselves adopted uh, the Equal Protection Clause, the 14th Amendment, the 15th Amendment in a race-conscious way. That they were, in fact, trying to ensure that people who had been discriminated against, the freedmen... Um, in, during the Reconstruction period uh, were actually uh, 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 brought equal to everyone else in the society. So I looked at the uh,
0: report... The case that was heard from Alabama, where about 27% of the voting age population is African American, but only one of the seven congressional districts is configured to make it likely that a black candidate would win. A um, three-judge panel, one Democratic appointee, two from Trump, applied the law and said there should be two of those uh, districts and that Alabama should redraw its maps. The Supreme Court stepped in, stopped that, so that the fall elections will come under the plan that the legislature adopted.
3: I understood your argument to be that the first jingles factor required the plaintiffs to come forward with a racially neutral map showing an increase in majority minority districts because that was the way to establish a baseline from which equal opportunity could be judged in the totality of the circumstances test. Mm -hmm. And I understood you to be saying that you are being asked, all states are being asked to navigate the rock and the hard place of the 14th Amendment and the Voting Rights Act and that if you were forced to adopt a map proposed by the plaintiffs that was racially gerrymandered because race was predominant in its drawing, that you would be violating the 14th Amendment.
0: It seemed from the arguments that Alabama would win in some fashion, but not as broadly as it hoped to. But, you know, oral arguments are only an indication of the questions that were asked, not what the justices may end up doing. Uh, They have another case that's coming later in the term. It hasn't been scheduled yet. That's about the so-called independent state legislature theory, which is whether or not the legislature has the responsibility, I shouldn't say alone, but also with Congress, in setting up federal elections, that is, for president, for Congress. In this case, uh, from North Carolina, The state Supreme Court stepped in, said that the maps for the congressional delegation had been gerrymandered so much that it affected the right to a free and fair election, that the Republican legislature had drawn it so that only a handful of the districts could go to Democrats, even though North Carolina is pretty much a purple state. The state Supreme Court stepped in put in a new map, and now the question for the Supreme Court is, does a state court have a role in looking at those constitutional questions, or does, as the Constitution would seem to say, only the legislature have such a role? This would be a huge change in the way things are done, because it would mean that there would be no judicial review of the legislature's decision, even... In cases where the courts say that there was an unconstitutional dilution of voters' rights.
1: And what are some of the other major cases that uh, they're going to be considering that you're going to be paying attention to?
0: I think that the one that we'll look at next the most is uh, affirmative action. And uh, you might be noticing a theme of race Mm -hmm. uh, here. This one is about the admission policies at two schools, Harvard and the University of North Carolina. The court has said for decades now that race can be used as uh, universities plan their student bodies and they want balanced, ethnically diverse student uh, populations and that it can't predominate, there can't be quotas, uh, but race could play a role. And both Harvard and North Carolina do that. That has been challenged throughout the years. It has barely hung on uh, by a bare majority of the Supreme Court. Many of those justices are gone. They've been replaced by much more conservative justices. And so I think it will be a surprise if affirmative action and the use of race survives this challenge at the Supreme Court.
1: And then they'll also be hearing a case from Colorado regarding same-sex marriage, correct?
0: Uh, Sort of. The the baseline is same-sex marriage. It's about a woman who wants to create wedding websites, um, but she says she only wants to do it for heterosexual couples because... Her religious beliefs tell her that marriage is only between a man and a woman. Didn't
1: Wasn't there already a case does from Colorado? Sounds, it sound sounds very familiar. familiar.
0: Yes. That was a baker from Colorado who didn't want to prepare a custom wedding cake for a same-sex couple. The court uh, took that case. It, like this one, bumped up against Colorado's anti-discrimination laws, which protects gay people from discrimination. In that case, though, the Supreme Court kind of punted on the big question, and they might not get completely to the core question in this one either. This is being portrayed as a free speech case. This person uh, creates art, a wedding website that is custom and different, and her contention is that she can't be forced to speak uh, in the First Amendment sense by doing something that she thinks is wrong. And so it's presented as a free speech case, not a religious rights case.
1: I don't know if this is exactly correct, but it seems like they are revisiting a lot of issues that people had thought settled, and perhaps that's not... The legally correct way to look at it, but with the Roe v. Wade decision, we thought this was settled precedent. We thought this had already happened. Is this common for the court to revisit similar cases over time, or is this something that is unique to this court?
0: It's not unique to this court. I wouldn't say that. I do think you know that one misperception about the court is that it takes something and it settles it, and it is settled forever. Uh, In fact, it's often much more incremental as To Roe, you know, what was most controversial about that is they were overturning a precedent that had been around for 50 years that uh, women had come to rely upon the availability of abortion. And so that's where the real controversy comes in about when you're overturning something that is so major and something that has been uh, relied upon for people for decades. And for
1: better or for worse, someone like Chief Justice John Roberts is dealing with what feels like a public crisis of confidence in the court. Have you ever had a chance to sit down with John Roberts or get to talk with him? What kind of a jurist would you describe him as? And how does he see his role as the chief justice?
0: Yeah, the chief justice does not give media interviews. Um, He talks to law schools. uh, He gives speeches before judges. You know, he would describe himself, I think, as something of of a minimalist. That uh, he doesn't want sort of broad, sweeping rulings. Now, there are exceptions to that. Uh, Voting Rights Act is one in which he has done some pretty sweeping things. But for the most part, he would rather they be narrow. That the court would move incrementally. Sometimes he wins those. Sometimes he doesn't. He, for a time, a short period, was the median justice, and so he was really in a position to control the outcome in a lot of big-ticket cases. He does not have that power anymore, as we saw with the abortion case, although it's also, I think, a mistake to think that he is much more moderate than the other conservatives. I mean, if you look at last term, with the exception of the abortion case— He was part of those big conservative victories on all sorts of issues, like the environment and uh, gun rights. Uh, But, you know, the Chief Justice would really like to see the courts as an independent branch that, you know, sort of has its own rules and sort of operates on its own. Uh, If the court doesn't uh, uh, retain its legitimate function of interpreting the Constitution, Um, I'm not sure who would uh, take up that uh, mantle. You don't want the political branches telling you what the law is, uh, uh, and you don't want public opinion to be the guide uh, of what the appropriate decision is. So,
1: I think one thing for a lot of the public that it's made it hard to look at the court as apolitical were the revelations of the text messages from Justice Clarence Thomas's wife, Ginny Thomas, to various state officials, to former President Trump's chief of staff, Mark Meadows, advocating overturning election results. Now, that wasn't Thomas himself, but how has that played out within the court? But how does someone like Justice Thomas continue to keep his role on the court separate from a matter of politics and someone who's so personally close with them. Do you have any insight into how Thomas or his aides have been trying to reconcile
0: these two issues? These activities, they have caused conflicts throughout the years. Uh, Her outspoken opposition to the Affordable Care Act, for instance, when those cases were before the court. So I think, does it hurt the court's image? I think that it probably does. Is there a lot that the court can do about that? I don't think so. Justices make their own decisions about recusals and which cases they should sit out. You know, there's n- not much that the other members of the court can do about that. I do
1: want to ask you about what it's like to introduce a new justice to the court, because one very simple way to look at it is to say, oh, well, one liberal justice leaves, one liberal justice goes in. But how how does that change the dynamic of the court? I mean, it's a new person, a different personality. Have you noticed when that happens, does the court feel different?
0: Uh, it does feel different. And it's not just that there's a new uh, justice joining, it means that there is a justice leaving. And so in this case, it's Justice Stephen Breyer, who's been on the court for almost 28 years. He was known as one of those sort of always looking for compromise, always trying to find sort of a narrow thing that they could agree on rather than a big decision. And so I think his loss is going to mean a lot for the court. Now, on the other hand, what will Justice uh, Jackson bring? She brings experience as a district judge. That means a judge who presides over trials. She was a public defender. There are none of the justices who ever had that kind of experience in criminal cases on that side of a criminal case. There are two prosecutors. She is the first African-American woman on the Supreme Court ever. After her formal investiture ceremony, Last Friday, she talked to the Library of Congress and talked about sort of the outpouring of emotion and support she has seen, which seemed to surprise even her about what it means for young women to see someone who looks like them in this position. And she spoke very sort of modestly and, I thought, movingly about, you know, the responsibility she feels
2: People from all walks of life approach me with what I can only describe as a profound sense of pride and what feels to me like renewed ownership. I can see it in their eyes. I can hear it in their voices. They stare at me as if to say, look at what we've done.
1: To people observing the court, I think one way you can very much look at this is to just say that it'll be a repeat. You have the conservative majority and on these decisions regarding affirmative action and elections, people think that it'll just be an automatic conservative ruling. What would you say to that, Bob? And do you think that after all your time watching the court and observing this court that there actually could be some surprises where a liberal justice might swing on a traditionally conservative argument or the other way?
0: I think we always have a couple of cases where you'll be surprised by the outcome or you'll be surprised by the lineup. For the most part, those are not the big-ticket cases of the term. And I think on the big-ticket cases of the term, I would be very surprised if the conservative majority is not in the majority. By taking some of these cases, the majority has shown what the outcome might be. Now, whether it's a broadly written opinion or whether it is a narrow decision, that we won't find out. I'll be surprised if there are a lot of surprises in this term.
1: Bob, thank you so much for your time and best of luck on what I'm sure is going to be a busy couple months for you.
0: Thank you very much. Robert
1: Barnes covers the Supreme Court for The Post. This story was produced by Charlotte Freeland. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show is mixed by Renny Svarnosky. Our executive producer is Maggie Penman. Our supervising senior producer is Rena Flores. Ted Muldoon is our senior producer. Our producers are Eliza Dennis, Charlotte Freeland, Alana Gordon, Ariel Plotnick, and Jordan Marie Smith. Sabi Robinson and Emma Talkoff are assistant producers. Sean Carter is our engineer. The Post Director of Audio is Renita Jablonski. I'm Arjun Singh. We'll be back Monday with more stories from The Washington Post.